Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Alana with the Dealing with Donor Conception podcast. And I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, I'm invited onto the show, and he said yes, Mr. Craig Trzinski. Craig is just a phenomenal scientist, and he's someone that I had the pleasure of meeting um, in person recently and had a few different phone calls with and uh, through the Billings Ovulation Method organization. But Craig has this phenomenal education and scientific background in um, reproduction in general, and he has agreed to share with us a little bit of what he's learned over the last uh couple decades. And so, Craig, welcome to the show. Alana, thank you. I I appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you and and your listeners. Oh, this is going to be great. Uh, This is going to be so great because you're like just smart and have done this and you've been in the field for a long time. And I want everybody to know just how credentialed you are. So first you got a degree in animal science, right? Correct. So a degree in animal science. And what university was that from? So um, I grew up in the Midwest, and um, part of that was on a farm in Iowa. And so around the time that I was finishing high school, I was very interested in the agriculture field and specifically animal science. So I went to Iowa State University uh, for that degree. And then you kept going. You you were yeah. so interested in it. And then you went to Texas A and M, right? Yeah. So so how that how that happened was um, when I graduated from Iowa State, my very first professional job out of college was was actually working for a company that provided bull semen for the dairy industry. So up in Wisconsin and Northeast Iowa, where the dairy industry is very large, um, most of the dairy farmers there use artificial insemination to breed their cows. Right. So I had a, I had a two county territory that I drove around in and the farmers would call me uh, the evening prior for the morning and in the, and in the morning for the afternoon. And I would, I would drive around the countryside stopping at, dairy farmers um, places and and breeding their cows. So I did that for about a year, year and a half, and uh, then went back to finish my school, or not to finish, but to continue pursuing a a graduate degree. And I chose Texas A&M because they are a great agriculture veterinary school, but also it was someplace that was warm. (laughs) I um, I was looking forward to not having to live through the Midwest uh, winters anymore. So I chose A&M and, and they have a, a really great program there in physiology of reproduction. Um, right. And you got the your- major. Prof- in that program? Yeah. The, my, my major professor was uh, Dr. Dwayne Kramer. He was a, he was a DVM PhD, so a, a veterinarian with a PhD, and he had a large group of students, um, over over 20 graduate students that studied under him, all doing projects. So that's where I um, that's where I did my studies. 
Interesting. You know, it's funny. So one of the complaints that there that the donor conceived community has is that the cattle industry in the in the agriculture industry keeps better track of their donors, meaning like <laughs> bulls and then and studs than the human reproduction industry. So do you think that's true? Do you keep better track of your cows and your pigs than than the the human <laughs> you know, I, I would say, I would say, I would say yes. Um, wow. You know, so first of all, the, uh, you know, the genetics are very well defined. And uh, for instance, when I was uh, working in the, in the artificial insemination industry, it was my job to come in and look at the um, kind of the pedigree of the, of the cow and then choose a bull that matched with her genetically. And of course, then you wanted to make sure that there wasn't, um, you know, inbreeding or, uh, you know, making sure that the, that the genetics were diverse. Um, so, so absolutely there was a lot more, <laughs> a lot more. There's no such thing as an anonymous uh, sperm donor in the, in the agriculture industry. Very interesting. And the cows don't lie to you about their genetic history either, do they? Or their personal? No, no they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> wow. wow. Fascinating. Um, yeah. And in, in the, with sperm donation and humans and stuff that you, you could potentially be buying your brother's sperm and they don't keep track of that at all. You, you, that you is, know. that is absolutely, um, you know, one of what I would call the top five issues with assisted reproductive technology. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, there's, for any type of third-party reproduction where the donor egg or the donor sperm comes from an anonymous donor, since you can't track that, you would never know. You, you you could meet somebody, fall in love with them, and marry them, and not even know. Yeah, and that's that happened. they could be a they could be a half sibling of yours. Yeah, that's happened. Have you have you seen the um, ASRM? The gosh, what is it? The it's like the you know they're the authority in America. The the ASRM, and they have some guidelines about sperm donation in um, in the United States, and and I. I should have pulled this up, but I have it on my Instagram page for dealing with donor conception, but their recommendation is like 26 offspring per population of 800,000 or something. But if you, if you really expand that out, it's just, you're talking about tens of thousands of children that one sperm donor is allowed to have within, you know, a country or it, it's a, the guidelines for yes. reproduction are just. Yes, I, I, I agree with you, Alana. The, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM, is the authority for reproductive medicine in the United States. And they have a, a number of guidance documents. And, you know, a lay person could look at those and and identify that they that they are somewhat self-serving in many ways um and uh, that would this would be an example of that 
Yeah. <sighs> so let, let me let me go on to just kind of finish so for your listeners so they realize that I made a trans a transition, if you will, from the field of of animal reproduction to the field of human reproduction when I finished my PhD. So normally uh, the route is after someone completes a PhD, they will do a postdoctoral fellowship someplace. And, and I chose to do a postdoctoral fellowship at a place called the Women's Research Institute in Wichita, Kansas. And there I did basic research, kind of cellular research on the ovary and the oviduct. Um, some of that research was NIH funded. Um, and the other part of my responsibility was uh, assisting in the direction of the uh, assisted reproductive technology lab there where we did um, human IVF. So that it was there that I adapted all of my experience with animal reproduction to human reproduction. And many, many people may know this um, or many may not. Um, when IVF clinics really were developing in the United States, uh, mid mid to late 80s, early 90s, most of the laboratory expertise for developing those programs came from the agriculture industry. So people that had um, experienced with animal IVF, embryo transfer, artificial insemination, designed and ran those laboratories. And so it was a normal progression for somebody with my degree. Right. After I finished my postdoctoral fellowship, I, I accepted a faculty position to develop and direct the IVF uh, andrology and hormone assay uh, laboratories for LSU Medical Center in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, I did that for five years. Mm. So um, I'd been in this, you know, I'd really spent uh, the better part of my uh, career when I was young pursuing reproduction and infertility treatment. Wow. So you really know your stuff. Well... <laughs> I, I think it's helpful for people to know know your background to understand the credibility aspect of of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So, it, it, when you were performing IVF, because um, presumably you were responsible for creating, you know, thousands of embryos. Probably, would that be correct? I mean, every day you went sure. to and you were yep. making embryos. So did you feel appreciated? Was it, was, what was the, what was your why? Like, um, how, what was the uh, atmosphere like as far as being appreciated? And, and, and what, why did you choose to quit? I mean, if it was, if you're creating new lives and people are, are happy and appreciative, um, why wouldn't you continue in that um, field forever? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, very good question. So, Initially, what, what attracted me to the field of, of reproduction was the science. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, God's creation, for one thing, um, how we reproduce, but then the, the science behind the methods that can be used. Um, 
and you know with 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 animals there's really very little that could be considered not not moral or ethical but with humans there's a there's an ethical or moral or even spiritual aspect to it um and so my my transition was really or my conversion was really slow it, it was over a period of about 5 years and the helping couples achieve a baby is very, very rewarding. And, and, and I would say that the majority of people in the field, that's, that's why they do it. The, the providers are generally um, wanting to help couples to conceive and, and bringing, bringing the babies to the laboratory after, you know, a year or two years after they were born was was always a highlight of my day is to be able to you know see a couple that we helped and um, they would bring their baby by on a regular basis and just just so everybody could meet them and and be a part of their life and that was very rewarding but over that five year period of time I I began to struggle with some of the things that I observed. As most people know, couples with infertility struggle greatly in trying to conceive. And it's not surprising to think that they would be willing to do almost anything to have a baby. Sure. And I think while there are, there are some people in the field that will take advantage of that, um, again, the majority of them are in it for the right reasons. But really the, the best way for me to, to kind of represent that would be to tell some stories. And, 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 and I think there's probably not enough time for me to do that, but telling stories of the struggles that particular couples went through. Um, so only only one of three or one of four couples who come to would come to a program ever do actually achieve a pregnancy and in a in a that term baby say that number one more time how many people actually achieve one one of three or between one of three or four okay. so you know 30 20, 25 to 35%. So that's okay. If, if, if you take, if you take the overall population, right, if you, if you single out younger population, it's going to be closer to 50% or maybe even more. But if you take everybody that comes in to the program, then, then the real pregnancy rate is, is only 25 to 35%. Now it's improved much over the years. You know, it's been 20 years since I was in the field. So it has gotten much, it's gotten much better. However, majority, the majority of couples who come and go through that, that struggle, that roller coaster ride, I call it. Right. Ever do achieve. It's not like a, a cheap, affordable day at the spa. I mean, with the, with the failure rate of, you know, 75 or 
or 65%, um, if it was a pleasant experience and it was an affordable experience, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe that's a risk people are willing to take. But if it's, if they're mortgaging their house or spending twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on it, which is a fortune, um, and you know the the bodily the bodily stress that it goes through, then maybe that's something people should consider before they they you know make that time in physical and financial investment, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so. Um... I um again I would love to to tell you some stories um but but in light of our time let me just mention what I think are the kind of the top 5 issues please with the IVF industry please number 1 is multiple pregnancies leading to selective reduction um now that has improved a lot also. Routinely, when I was in the program, we would transfer three to five embryos. And the, the chances of multiple pregnancy with that was, was quite high. Okay, so um, faced with a, with a multiple pregnancy, then the, the couple has two choices. They can, they can risk it. And certainly, um, high-risk pregnancy care has improved as well because of the IVF industry. So um, they can they can choose to risk the their life and the lives of the of the babies and the health of the babies, or they can go through a procedure called selective reduction where potassium chloride under ultrasound is injected into a number of the fetuses to reduce the number that they're carrying. That would be num that, that would be number one. Yeah. So it's a euphemism. Pardon me? It's a euphemism for abortion. Selective reduction means it is. you gotta go in and abort the, the extra babies. That's a that's correct. Okay. So um number two is third party reproduction. Um, leading to just a myriad of legal challenges for one, you know, because when, when a couple struggle through infertility, sometimes the marriage is strained to the point where they, they, they divorce. And then there may be frozen embryos left behind. Um, and then there could be disagreements over how those embryos are used. Um, and then when you bring in a third party, then it, it, it only complicates things even more. So it leads to a myriad of legal issues. And as you have pointed out previously, the issues of um, half siblings, no, no information out there about uh, the, the the father or the mother who was the egg or sperm donor. We are right. um, mm -hmm. it, leading, you know, leading to all kinds of issues there as well. So that's number two. No, number three is abandoned frozen embryos. 
with the fate of most of those embryos being to either be discarded or, or donated for research. So there are literally thousands of frozen embryos. And when, when we began in the field, yes, the couple would have to sign kind of a consent form that says, you know, uh, you, you would uh, leave your embryos here and you'll pay us an annual fee um, for storage, but eventually you will utilize them. But then as issues started to arise, we needed to offer alternatives. If you, uh, if you abandon these embryos, then these embryos uh, over a period of time would either be discarded or used for research. And so the default for most of these embryos is if the if the couple abandons them and they lose contact with the laboratory, then then those embryos will be um, discarded or or uh, research would be performed on them. So that's a that's a still a, a very serious issue that the field has. Yeah, and I, if I can just speak to that for a minute, you know, I used to to be one of the people who who were like, well, so what? It's just an embryo. But but now uh, my tune has changed quite a bit. And when you w- when you have an infertile couple who you know maybe the woman's forty, forty two, forty five, and they did an IVF cycle, and these are the eggs used for the creation of these embryos might be her last eggs, and so they have this you know you have the maybe the eight embryos that were kind of her last shot at conceiving and you create those embryos and, and those couples know that that's a human being. They, they know that they're the most acutely aware because that that's their last chance at a biological child. And they know the gender, you know, you look at an embryo, you can tell the gender, you can tell uh, how many details can you tell from an embryo? Like it's got, it's full DNA sequence you can tell if it has Down syndrome. What else can you tell? Craig? Well, you certainly at um, at the stage that we're looking at the embryos prior to transfer, typically is going to be um, three to five or six days of development. So they're they're going to be eight cell. 16 cell, uh, a stage called a morula or a blastocyst. Okay, and they and they still are contained within this protein covering called a zona pellucida. What's what's possible to tell under the microscope is if that embryo is morphologically normal looking, and obviously you want to have an embryo that looks normal. However, there's it, there's there's no absolute there, right? So e- even though morphologically normal embryos will more likely result in a in a baby, a pregnancy in a baby, morphologically abnormal looking embryos can still go to term. Um, so it's not an absolute science there. So, right. but with the with the level that I'm looking at them. Unless we were to do genetic testing, which is another procedure that's that's uh, associated with assisted reproductive technology, 
It's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where they can go in and pull one of those cells, one or two of the cells out of the embryo, and then run a genetic analysis on them, and they can tell everything. Right. And in some cases, then those embryos are not selected and discarded if they carry a disease or could even be it's not the sex that the couple wants. We wanted a boy, so, not a girl. Um, right. Right. But um, the, um, the last two, and I'll just mention these briefly, the last two major issues that I call the top five is the, the chances of physical and emotional um, risks to the, to the offspring conceived through assisted reproductive technology. So there are well, there are, clinical there are plenty of studies that that demonstrate that there are um, issues that can occur to the offspring. There are other studies that refute it. So, so the so the field likes to say it's still you know it's still not fully determined. But there's plenty of evidence to show that there are issues. With, with and the then the fifth that, one. I just briefly, with the studies that show that there are um, medical issues with it, um, wouldn't the studies that refute those studies, I mean, there's a lot of financial incentive to, for, the, for the medical industry to say that IVF is okay and that your child's going to be healthy. So is there a chance of corruption that those studies that refute the problems with, with um, IVF issues might be being financed and tweaked a little bit just for for the sake of keeping the industry alive sure sure there's a there's a chance for corruption but i would say what's more likely is bias bias is certainly part of it but um the the aspect that kind of complicates things is the fact that ivf has led to higher incidences of multiple pregnancies, as we pointed out earlier, and then there's preterm births associated with that. So sometimes we can't tell if the, if the problems that are associated with offspring of assisted reproductive technology is due to the multiple pregnancy or if it's due to the techniques of the IVF right. um, procedure itself. Right. So that's what complicates things. And, and of course, keeping it complicated, there, there, there may be reasons for doing that. Um, so, so that we, you know, we don't shut it down essentially. Right. But the, the final, the final uh, top five is offspring produced by procedures that have not been tested or evaluated in animals first. So as I pointed out at the beginning, the agriculture uh, people that were trained in the agriculture industry were pulled into human IVF because they had the expertise and the, all the procedures were essentially already done in animals. Right. But today, and even back in my day, they were beginning, the, there are procedures that are being used to produce offspring that have never been tested in animals. An example of that is ICSI, 
intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Right. And the the procedure of... They pick one sperm yeah, the, and then in, they inject it manually into the egg to fertilize it. Correct. Correct. And, and that procedure was never successful in animals before it was successful in humans. Wow. So as soon as it became successful, it, it spread like wildfire. And most uh, embryos are conceived through ICSI now because the, the thought process is, you know, why take the chance? Why take the chance that you could um, end up with, go through the procedure and end up with fertilization failure? By, by using ICSI, you guarantee fertilization. So in most cases, standard IVF is, is bypassed and it goes right to ICSI. But then there are other procedures such as germinal vesicle transfer, cytoplasmic injection. Those are, those are two procedures that are meant to try to um, bypass the issue that an older woman has with her eggs. By, by preserving the genetic material of the, of the woman's egg, but providing factors from the cytoplasm of a young woman's egg, to support that genetic. So in essence, what you do is you're producing an offspring from three people. Wow. The sperm, the genetics of the, of, the, of the woman, and then the cytoplasm and, and or other egg components of a third woman. Is that I mean, uh, in this case, a third person, second, second woman. Is that another name for the mitochondrial donor? Yes, actually, yes, because that was that. That's where probably the biggest contribution is coming from, is the mitochondria, and, and, and most scientists understand and know that there are mitochondrial DNA. Right. So, so that is a that is an offspring that's been produced with, through material of, of three people. And humans are already being born like this with three parents, technically. Three this, this, uh, these procedures were going on when I was in the field 20 years ago. Wow. I, I, I can't tell you with certainty whether or not there have been offspring produced because I haven't stayed up with that, that science close enough to be able to say, but my, my inclination is that there have been offspring already born. Sure. In that manner. I'm sure there has. I mean, um, I'm sure there has, but I want to, you know, we don't have too much more time. I really, really want to talk to you about your conversion into natural family planning. Yes. Tell us about, yeah. you know, so you got out of IVF because of these big five issues that just, that strains you spiritually and morally. And, but you know, you have your whole education and your whole background. I mean, obviously you're not going to switch and become a banker. So what did you do next? What was the solution that, 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 you know, yeah. are you home to? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I, um, I, the, the, the final, I guess the final pivotal point was when I was forced to carry out the wishes of a couple and discard the embryos against my 
um, against my will, essentially. Mm. That that was kind of the final straw. I left the field and I got busy just supporting my family. I went into medical device, um, sales and management, and I um, orthopedics actually, and and really spent the, the next twenty years doing that. Um, all along, you know, kind of paying attention and taking a bigger interest in natural family planning. And I, I was born, um, you know, a Catholic where you find natural family planning very common, but I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to that. Um, and I take, I take responsibility for it. But afterwards, I did start to, uh, you know, reflect on, on teaching, on the church teaching of that. But not only that, but with the health issues related to natural family planning. So I did some training in the Creighton model around 2007, 2008, then got busy with work again, didn't, didn't complete, didn't, uh, you know, continue with that. And then it wasn't until really uh, 2018 that I, I just finally decided that I needed to finish my training in natural family planning so that I could teach. And I did that with the Billings ovulation method. Again, because of the, the science, I, I'm, I'm a scientist by trade, so the science attracted me. Also, the, 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 the way that I could learn uh, fit with my busy schedule. And so I finished my training with the Billings ovulation method. I love and, that, which became, is the method I teach, and I love it. But can, can you speak on the, the effectiveness, like the, the scientific effectiveness of overcoming infertility with the Billings ovulation method or the Creighton model? Like, does it work? Because I don't think people think it works. I think they think, I've never heard of this before. Well, it's real. Right. Yeah, so a, a, a large majority of, of issues with infertility can be resolved through simply kind of evaluating the whether whether the man and woman are are at least normal in their in their fertility and then precise timing and and then tweaking lifestyle lifestyle nutritional issues along with that okay so a large majority of people can be helped that way um, and obviously, if you have blocked tubes, um, natural family planning is probably not going to help with that. But there are surgical procedures. So there are certain surgical procedures that can be done to kind of in, improve a, a couple's chances of conceiving naturally. And then again, making sure that the timing and the lifestyle issues are, are proper is, is, is going to help with that. So the best, the best study that I'm aware of, and I, and I, I apologize that I don't, I can't quote you right now the authors and the publication, but there is a publication that uh, looked at couples who had actually failed IVF previously. So these couples went through um, uh, IVF unsuccessfully, and then 
used natural family planning and, and natural methods to conceive. And the pregnancy rate was around 37%. Wow. So right there, we, we've already talked about the fact that most in the most IVF clinics, the pregnancy rate is going to be 25 to 35%. So in, in failed IVF patients, the pregnancy rate with natural family planning was 37%. Now, it's important to point out that there are other medical treatment going on. Like I said, if, if there's blocked tubes, you discover that. If there are issues with, such as male factor, you might be able to do some, some uh, lifestyle changes, nutritional changes that can help with that as well. Yeah, I've Sometimes heard stories of success when, when, with male factor, just lifestyle changes, which is great. Right, right. So, um, so there are other medical treatment that needs to go on in conjunction with that. That's why it's very important to find a healthcare practitioner who has been trained on natural family planning and incorporates that into their treatment regimen. Because, um, you know, one of the more egregious things that I think happens in, in reproductive medicine is we, we don't really determine what the underlying cause of the infertility is. We only use the technology to overcome. So, by by studying what the underlying causes are, much of the infertility can actually be cured as opposed to just being masked and overcome right. um, through technology. Right. IVF doesn't heal the body. But if you chart your cycle through natural family planning, you can understand the root causes of what's causing the infertility and then restore the health of the woman or the man um, well, not through charting his cycle because he didn't have a cycle, but, but essentially you can get to the root cause and then make the changes necessary to heal the body. And that's the big difference. Am I summarizing? Right. No, perfect. Yep. That's absolutely true. So, so I know that you with, um, cause tell everybody your title at the, at BOMA, Billings Ovulation Method America. Um, you've gotten involved yeah. with them uh, more directly now. So you're the yes. director of Yes, my title my title is Director of Development and Strategic Planning. So um obviously the the association or the organization wants to grow. And and so they brought me on to kind of help with that. And one of the ways to do that as a nonprofit is to is to raise money but then also formulate a direction for the organization long-term. So I'm the, captivated by your campaign to try to teach doctors because there's not enough doctors who doctors don't even know about this. Like OBGYN aren't teaching this, don't know it. And so tell us about your camp. Like how many lives can one doctor touch in their career? And because I know that I've got some doctors listening to this podcast right now. So I'd love for you to speak on that point. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So that is, therein lies the issue is in, in medical school, nursing school, other allied health professionals, they're not being taught the science behind natural family planning or fertility awareness based methods as it's more, um, more commonly called now. But 
um, they're not being taught this. So what we want to do is very simple. We want to get the information to doctors, nurses, PAs, pharmacists, other allied health professionals, and we want to get it to them early in their career. So A, they can then kind of incorporate it into their education as they're learning some of the, some of the conventional um, methods, and they can contrast it with what they've, what they've just learned and make their own choice. But for B, then when they can get, when they get out, they can incorporate it into their, into their practice. They can be champions for the use of natural methods in their practice. And each healthcare professional has on average about 90,000 patient visits throughout their career. Mm-hmm. And when a when when you hear when a woman hears this from their nurse or their doctor, it's much more impactful than when they hear it from their peers or they hear it from their parish priest or they hear it from a, a marriage counselor. It 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 is healthcare. And so by by keeping it with the healthcare community and hearing it from the healthcare community, it's going to be that that much more impactful. And so if if I'm a doctor listening to this podcast or I'm a, a medical student, um, how do I learn the method and how do I get trained so that I can teach the method and what does it cost? How long does it take? Yes. Yes. So um, thank you for that question uh, because currently we have scholarships available for okay. healthcare professionals to learn the method and how to teach the method and incorporate it into their practice. Oh my goodness. So that's great. So the majority of the costs will be covered. Um, there'll be a small fee that the, uh, that the person will have to uh, pay, you know, so they're in, so they're engaged and they've also invested in it. Yeah. Um, usually around a hundred to $200 is all this course will cost the healthcare professional. And there could be a possibility of needing to travel. While we have online resources, the, the in-person training opportunity is, is, is very powerful and, and we try to have that be part of the training as well. So there could be, there could be a travel component necessary but do they get their teacher certification in a year five years two months yeah i would say on on average it's going to take six to 12 months it really depends on on how quickly they go through the go, go through the self-paced portions of the training but they there is there's both they there are other classes too they it's they can take their regular classes and also just add this on. It's not intensive everyday studying or is it? Correct. Okay. Correct. You, um, so for instance, I learned the method through, uh, through a remote training. I was able to do the, there's 10 lessons, if you will. I was able to do each lesson in about a week, but based on my busy schedule mm-hmm. and, and then, so that was that was ten weeks, and then I went it progressed into the practical part of it, and you where you actually start teaching couples, and that took me about about six months. 
great. And so where, where does one go specifically to sign up and be, and go through the teacher's certification process so they can teach this to their patients or their, um, yes. So, so I'll give you two, uh, two contacts. One is our website. You can find teachers on our website and you can find information on how to learn the method or teach the method. And that is BOMA, B-O-M-A dash USA dot org. And I'll, and I'll then put if, this in the if, show notes too. So people will have direct links in the show notes. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. And then if, if, if you are specifically listening to this and you're a healthcare practitioner, professional of any, of, of any kind, then I urge you to reach out directly to me by email. And, and my email is Craig at BOMA, B-O-M-A dash USA dot org. So reach out to me and, and, uh, just tell me that you're you're a healthcare professional and you're interested in our opportunities for learning and the scholarships. That is so great. That is so great. One, I, go ahead. One more thing I would like to add, Alana, is obviously to get these scholarships, we rely on generous donors, yeah. and we've had many generous donors. So if if there's anybody listening that knows of somebody that is um, is called to want to donate towards this cause, then I also urge them to reach out to me. Yes, that's, that is so needed. And it's, um, um, you guys are a nonprofit, so it's tax deductible. Is that true? That's correct. Right. So we're at the end of 2019 right now. So people need to get in all their charitable donations before taxes are due for here. So this is great timing. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Craig, I have to have you back on the podcast. I, I, I promised myself that I was going to try to keep these, these um, timed out around a half an hour and we're, we're past that for sure. But I have to have you back because you're so smart and, and knowledgeable about all these things. But thank you, thank you for taking your time and being here with us and explaining all these things to us. You're just a, a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, Alana. I appreciate the opportunity. And um, by all means, I'll be happy to happy to contribute. Okay, great. Well, you have well. a great weekend. And everybody, I'm going to put in the show notes um, Craig's email. I'm going to put in um, the link if you want to, to learn or um, become a teacher for the Billings Ovulation Method and start teaching natural family planning. Um, and I'm also going to put a link. Uh, I, can, I teach the Billings Ovulation Method too, so I'm going to put my scheduling link in there. You can do you can sign up for a class so you can start charting your cycle um, with me, and we can do this online digitally, and you can start learning tomorrow how to chart your cycle and get to the bottom of if you've got infertility issues or if you just want to avoid pregnancy naturally without the pill, it can be used for that too. So thank you everybody for um, listening to the podcast and uh, we'll see you next week.